This is week uh, four, I believe, on the series that we've been doing on the church. And basically what we're trying to understand is there's this big concept called the church. And what we're trying to do is not just learn information about it, but understand um, why the church is such a radically important thing. Um, even this week, just based on reading some things as a result of a Google search, I was reminded for the first time that there's so many people in the world who um, believe that they can be Christians and not care about the church. Um, and it's not just a bunch of uh, random Christians that would disagree with them. It's the Bible that would disagree with that. Um, and it's not because the Bible just wants one more rule like the church to impose on people, or it wants to steal Um, A bunch of Christians want to steal your Sunday mornings to not be about you anymore. It's because God has a plan to bless you and to bless his people and to bless the world through the church. Um, That's why God has ordained the church to exist, um, that it would be a blessing to you and that God might use you to bless the world through this thing called the church. And that's why we're trying to understand it. So the first week we were looking at it. Um, We were looking at Matthew 28, and we were understanding this idea of the church as God's people. The church isn't this building. Um, The church is the people of God gathered together, whether they're in a building or not. And their mission is to make disciples and to continue to teach those disciples, to go, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to continue to teach them. And then the second week, um, we were understanding how those people came together which was through the gospel. The gospel wasn't just the message that saved you as an individual. It was the message that God used to unite even the most different people in the whole world. And our example, of course, for that was the Jewish people and the Gentile people, the people who had the most beef, the most animosity of basically anyone on earth. Even they could be united because of this amazing message of the gospel. And then last week, what we were trying to understand is that God has given us a couple of pictures or you might call them identities, that the Bible should take on, that should think of themselves as. Um, And last week, we learned about the idea of citizenship. I think it was two weeks ago, actually, this idea of citizenship. Christ has made us citizens of heaven. And when we meet together, for example, on Sunday mornings, we are like an embassy. We are like a picture of what a heavenly kingdom is going to look like on earth And we get to bless each other and bless the whole world when we gather to demonstrate how much better it is to be in a heavenly world that Christ has prepared us for and not this world. But when we were getting that idea of citizenship, which is from Ephesians chapter 2, is where we were in. um, In verse 19, where that that, uh, word comes from, citizens, there's also another concept that Paul brings up. He says we're not only citizens... Um, But the next phrase that he uses is that we are members of the household of God. And that's the idea, that's the phrase we're going to jump off today to talk about this next identity or this next picture that God wants us to think of the church as. This idea of membership in the household of God can be summed up in one word, and that word is family. God wants you to view the church and to view your local church as a family. And so even as I say family, I understand that family is a huge topic, and even all of you guys have radically different kinds of families, and you have different thoughts and experiences with all of your families. Some of you have good memories that pop up. Uh, Some of you have not so good memories because of current struggles or particular patterns. Some of you have ideas of 
the uh, family is pretty straightforward. It's pretty understandable. It's pretty simple. And then some of you guys, when you think family, you think this is complicated. Um, and everybody has a little bit of both of that. Everybody understands, in a sense, what a family is or what a family should look like, even though the construct might look different. But I think everyone would also understand that being in a family or living with people day to day is also very complicated. It involves a lot of difficulties. Um, there's not just unity every single second of every single day. And yet, God has still used that idea that he wants the church to think of itself as. So one way that you could phrase this is that when God uses this idea of family, you should believe that it's important, and then you should also admit that it's messy. Absolutely no one in this whole world has a perfect family, no matter how much you might think you're in the best family ever, which is awesome, or how much you might look at other families and wish your family looked a little bit more like theirs. No one has a perfect family. And yet again, God still cares so much that the church think of itself as a family. And the idea of that isn't just from Ephesians chapter 2. The idea of the church as a family is something that is deeply biblical. Just think about some of the ways that God talks about all of the things that are relevant to theology all over the Bible. For example, God is called our Father. Christ is called the Son of God. Christians are described as being born of God and adopted by God, both family ideas as well. And all over the Bible, Christians are addressing each other as brethren or brothers and sisters. So all over the New Testament, this idea of family is incredibly important. And even though there's so many ideas and so many important concepts that are wrapped up in this, I want to simplify all of it down to one. Because there's one apostle specifically who uses this idea of family to talk about one thing and one thing that must be absolutely central in your life and in the life of the entire church. And that idea is love. When you think of family, you should be thinking of love. And the apostle that I'm thinking of that explains that concept, maybe more than any other writer in the New Testament, is the apostle John. So if you have your Bibles, jump over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 7 to 12. Honestly, when I was trying to prepare this message and this idea, there are so many places in the New Testament that you can go to talk about this idea. But I think in this small section of about six verses, John gets at a concept that will be incredibly helpful for us to think of God's family as love. Let me read the four verses for you. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. This is near the back of your Bibles. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now I want to look at those verses with you and do two things. Number one, I want to look at this text and I want to help you understand what the love of God means, what biblical love is, and why that is so important. But then the second thing I want to do is I want us to take the information that we get from here and then specifically apply it in our church so that everything you're learning about love isn't just a concept or knowledge, but they are things that are so amazing and so radical that you would desire to love like that in specific ways in our church. That's the goal that John is writing for us to get, that we wouldn't just understand love, but that we would receive God's love, we would be moved by God's love, and then we would love like God loves. That's the goal. So the first thing we have to understand, though, is what John is talking about. What does biblical love mean? And he breaks it down in a fairly easy-to-understand argument that kind of consists of four parts. And the first part is this. Where does love come from? It really sums up the first four verses, but it's kind of what brackets in John's entire argument. He's saying love didn't just exist randomly. Love had an origin. And that first point is summed up this way. Number one, love is from God. Love is from God. John says it right at the beginning, let us love one another for love is from God. And in verse eight, he ends that by saying God himself is love. I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, it says God does many different things. But in the whole entire Bible, only four times, it says God is something. That four different concepts are at the core of who God is. I don't know if you know what they are, but there's only four. Number one in Hebrews, God is a consuming fire. Number two, it says God is light. Not that he gives off light, he is light. Number three in John four, God is spirit. And actually John hints at that when he says we, no one has ever seen God. But the fourth is this, God is love. It's not deep enough to explain God as being loving. God is love. Love is at the core of who God is. And love is not even a concept unless God exists. There's a reason that that needs to be so important because as people who are made in God's image, most of us can go out into the world and we can see certain things and say that is loving or we can see something else and say, that isn't loving. There's lots of other concepts that are kind of attached with this compassion, mercy on one hand, kindness, or in the opposite, hatred or wrath or anger, things that are loving and not loving. However, what God is trying to get at is there's a specifically deep and radical concept of true love no matter how corny that might be in all sorts of movies and television shows that happen, God is explaining there is a true, perfect form of love that only God has. And no matter how much we might see it in the world, most people you talk to will readily admit 
that a real, deep, profound kind of love is genuinely difficult to find. For example, I was actually reading a psychologist who's not a Christian at all this week, and he was explaining that if you want to counsel somebody as a non-Christian, it's actually really important that you help them understand that love is really hard to find. This is what he says in his own words. He says, not everyone is capable of love. So not just being loving. There are some people who can't even remotely love. That's what he says. He says it's a simple truth, and yet the mind resists forming the words. Even reading it here is no doubt jarring. It's a terrifying idea. We like to assume that lovingness is woven into the basic stuff of every human heart and needs only somehow to be unlocked. And yet, we might spend decades of our lives searching for the key, working towards perfection, playing the right games in the right way, only to be met again and again with the profoundly painful fact of a beloved's unloving. So this is a guy who's not a Christian, doesn't believe in God, and he's saying it's really important for you to understand love is incredibly rare. Not just deep love, but just regular lovingness. The reality is you can find all sorts of things in this world that are like love, but not exactly love in terms of what we would know we want to find and should find in, in lots of situations, maybe even need to find. I was kind of thinking about this this week. I was eating a dish with someone I know, like a food, and it's one of my favorite foods ever. And as we were talking, I was kind of stoked for when it came out. By the way, this is not Ashley's cooking. This would never be Ashley's cooking. But in a restaurant, and when it came out, I ate the thing, and it was absolutely watery and pretty runny and probably one of the worst versions of that food I'd ever had. And I was thinking to myself, it's so rough to be so excited to try and get this food that I love so much only to find a really bad version of it. And the reality is that's kind of like love in this world. You'll find all sorts of versions of it, but when you understand how deep God's love is, it makes all of the other loves in this world seem runny and watery and not even worth being a part of. That's what John is trying to understand when he has these three simple words, God is love. It is impossible to describe God as unloving in any part of the Bible, no matter how difficult certain parts might be for us. And the reason is because we have such a deficient version of what love is. And the reality is, though, that God doesn't want to just hoard this love to himself even though through all eternity, God has always loved Father, Son, and Spirit together Trinitarianly before time began. The idea that John's getting at is not just telling you God is love, but he's explaining he wants to share that love. That love is so amazing that it overflows out of God and to the church. But the way John describes it is this way, and this is the second part of John's argument, that love comes to God's children. Love comes to God's children. He explains that when he says, whoever loves God has been born of God. There are basically two ways to describe being or becoming a Christian in the Bible. One is being born again, which is obviously family language. You're born into a family. You're born from a mother. But the other one that's used just as often is adoption, that you were not part of God's family and you've been brought into the family of God. And the idea is when you understand a family, 
you understand how profound it is that the God of the universe would bring you into his family. And therefore, the perfect way to describe it is being a child of God, not just a slave of God, not even just a friend of God, but an actual child of God. And John uses this language all over the place. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he explains it this way. To everyone who did receive Jesus and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think about how radical that is. God is perfect and holy and righteous. What are the qualifications for me to join his family? They must be crazy, right? They must be massive. They must basically involve me being perfect as greatly as I can. John wrote his gospel to say this, if you believe in Christ, you've been adopted to his family. That's the specifications to join his family, that you would have faith in Christ alone, not anything you've done, but everything he's done, and you not only get to be friends with God, you get to be in the family of God. And he begins by saying, this isn't even just for people who think they are the family of God, which were the Jews, he says in John eleven fifty two, 52, Jesus came to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what he's saying is there's people all over the world right now who don't yet believe in God, but they are God's children, and they're going to know it themselves one day when they hear the name of Jesus, they're radically transformed, and they believe in Christ. And God is going to find them, and he's sending his people to share with them the gospel that they might realize that they're children of God. This is so affectionate that Jesus even called his disciples little children. That's in John 13 and 21. And that idea was so profound. Not just that we'd be children, but almost like infants who God wants to teach and nurse and train and protect and keep safe. It's so amazing that John actually adopts the same language. And in every single chapter of his epistle, he uses the term little children, except chapter 1. He uses it all the time, but probably the best verse in all of John's writing to explain what he's trying to connect between being family and being loved is this verse, and write it down, because it's an amazing verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. This is what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And did you notice how he said that? What kind of love? I have loved you, in a very specific, unique way that is radically different from love in this world. This is the kind of love that the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. So God has called you a child, and it's true. I think he's saying that because it can be really hard to accept that fact. Knowing our sin, knowing our brokenness. And yet he says, you are a child, definitely, definitively. If you believe in Christ, you are a child of God, and you are loved by the king of the universe. Even though that concept feels either very ordinary and general to us, or that concept doesn't seem very deep because we compare it with our own families, our own families that are broken and messy, the idea that John is getting at is we should understand there is an ideal kind of family that all of us kind of wish we had. Sometimes we wish that our friends 
we're a family or they feel more than our family. Sometimes we wish certain members weren't in our family, if we're being honest. But the idea that John is getting at here is that there is an ideal family out there for you. The way to be in it is to come to Christ. And that family is perfectly ideal, not because of the people in the family, but because of the father of the family. That's why that family is ideal. There's two more parts to John's argument that are uh, very straightforward, and they're these. Number three, John explains that love continues by God. And the way that he says that is whoever loves uh, knows God. The idea of knowing is a continuous action. It's not no information. That specifically means have a relationship. You live with your family. You sleep in your room with your family in their other rooms. Every day you wake up and have breakfast or lunch or dinner together. You go home from school. You come home and you tell your parents or your family members about your day because you have an ongoing relationship with your family. That's the kind of family God's talking about. And just as you have an ongoing relationship with your family, God wants to have an ongoing, more and more deeply understood concept of love. Every day you know God, you know his love more profoundly. That's the idea. You haven't just been loved once, but when you go to bed and you wake up, God still loves you with the infinite love that he gave to his son. Because his son did everything that you would be loved. And that is honestly the fourth idea. Because he has one concept that can bring together all the other three parts of the argument, which is this. God revealed his love in Christ. God revealed his love in Christ. And that is verses 9 and verses 10 where he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Which is this. If God is so loving, and we only understand true love through God, God has to give us his love and make it show up in an obvious way. We need a picture of love that we can constantly go back to to know without a doubt that God could love us. And that perfect picture is Christ. This is the love of God that was made manifest, that shows up. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So not just so you would be saved, not just so you'd have a get out of hell free card for the rest of your life, but that you would have an ongoing relationship fueled by God's love for you that's so amazing it goes into eternity. That you've been adopted in and you'd never be unadopted. And it's so amazing and so strong that even you can't ruin it. And he says that because he says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. One Bible teacher I had had a good way of illustrating it once. He said, if you read your Bible tonight and go to bed and wake up, God is 100% pleased with you. If you sin profoundly one night and go to bed and wake up, God 100% loves you. What he's not saying is, God's love is so great, go and sin a ton. But he's reminding you that in the same way you couldn't do enough to earn God's love, there's not enough that a true child of God could do to remove God's love. That's the idea. Christians still sin, and they mess up in huge ways. But God's love is so profound that he won't ever remove them from Christ. In this, the love of God was made manifest, not that you have loved God, but that God has loved you. 
And all of that in John's argument leads to one inevitable action, which is this. Let us love one another. It's fascinating the way that John says it because he actually doesn't give a command. He doesn't say, if this is true, you better love one another. If this isn't true, then God's going to judge you. That's not the way he phrases it. These aren't imperatives, which means things that are commands. They're expectations. So what he's saying is, you're just naturally going to love when you understand God's supernatural love for you. I'm not going to have to tell you to love one another. I'm not going to have to force you to be in the same room as one another. I'm not going to have to add all these incentives so that you make sure you love people even though you don't want to. It's none of that. He's saying if you understand God's love, of course you love one another. He's pointing out the obvious. If you love God and you understand the richness of that love, you will love. And you will love people who have received the same love as you have in the church. That's John's idea. Christ proved the infinite depth of God's love for us so the church would always know what true love is. God sent us everything in Christ, and since we've received everything, that should change everything in our church. That's the idea. So that's John's biblical argument for love, and honestly, it could be a whole series in and of itself, and I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what it means to love one another. However, we, as a small part of the church, have a duty to do this, right? If we've been told that love is core to who God is, and God's love should go through us to one another, we need to know how to actually do that. Because a generic call to love is not easy to implement. Just because you know God is loving doesn't mean you know how to love the people around you who are radically different from you, and who sin and are broken and messy just like you are. Love is obvious, but it's also not easy, is the point. So what we need to do is we need to take this with some help from the rest of the Bible and just start applying this specifically. And even though there's a million ways to apply it, I was just thinking of at least three for us, both in roots and for us as a small part of the bigger body of CBC. And ironically, they all ended up being peas, um, so that's kind of helpful to remember, but it was just how it ended up. So these don't describe every single way it is to love, but these are at least three Ps that can help us learn how we can love other people in our church to apply it. Here's the first P. Number one, love in God's family is present. Love in God's family is present. The idea is that you can't love people if you never spend time with them. If you're not with people, it's hard for you to love them, and it's hard for them to feel that they've received love from you. The author of Hebrews says it this way, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? He says, by not neglecting to meet each other, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So the idea is I want other people to be loved and to have fruit of the Spirit come out to love other people in the world, I can't neglect to spend time with them. I need to actively pursue them. I need to actually be with them. I like the way that Paul says it in Romans chapter 1, verse 11. He says, I long to see you 
that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. The idea is I can't spiritually bless you if I'm not physically with you. So this is the reason that I'm saying it. It's because all of us have really busy lives. And you know what? This is going to probably be the least busy part of your whole life. So if you think you're busy now, you are going to be more busy later, most likely. And no matter what happens and wherever you go, I'm telling you, if you don't prioritize spending time with people, not only are you losing radical opportunities to love other people, but it's going to be really hard for you to understand the love of God. There's two ways that God loved you. He loved you individually, and he loved you corporately. God didn't want you to just intellectually understand his love and then sit in a box. He wanted you to understand love, and then he wanted you to understand the depth of it by being around other people who've been loved by God. You have an obligation to them. They have an obligation to you. And even though responsibility and duty language is difficult, sometimes it's the thing that makes us not want to do something, the point that he's saying is, if you really want to understand love, you have to prioritize the church. I like the way he says it, actually, in verse 11 and 12. He says this, we ought to love one another because God loved us. And he says this, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the idea. When you come on Sunday morning, you won't be greeted at the door by Jesus. It's not Jesus himself standing there with arms wide open, ready to give you a hug and usher you in. Even though it might feel like that'd be the best way God could do things, so his love would be really, really obvious, he said this, no one's ever seen God, but God's love is still just as clear in the church. How? because the people I've loved are in the church. And you might say, well, how can Christians love as profoundly as Christ did? And the reality is, I don't know. And sometimes when I think about it, I think, how on earth can God's people truly manifest the love of Christ? But here's the reality. When a messy, broken, and selfish person like you loves you selflessly, that's supernatural. That's radical. And when you see messy, broken, selfish people change and grow and suddenly do selfless, loving things that they'd never, ever consider doing before, that is a miracle. That is radical. And that does happen on Sunday mornings. That does happen if the gospel is at the center of your life and Christ is the purpose of your life on Friday nights. And again, this isn't a command to you. This is an invitation for you to see how radically the gospel can change your life and change other people's lives through you. God is inviting you to understand that even though you might be people radically different from you, interested in totally different things from you, even those people can be as close as brothers and sisters. I like the way one pastor, Jamie Dunlop, says it this way. When two people share Christ, even if everything else is different, they are closer than even blood ties could ever bring them because they are the family of God. 
And that exact same idea is what the writer of Acts says in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, where he describes the church this way, the early church. When they understood the gospel and it changed them, this is what they looked like. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They wanted to be so united that they shared everything. They're like, I have everything in Christ, and I've been given more than I need with other people. I don't need stuff. And even though you might not want stuff from people, you definitely want similarities from people. I think all of us feel more comfortable when we've got something we both love. But when the thing we both love is Jesus Christ, those kind of relationships are heavenly. That's John's idea. This is the third P. The first P is presence. The second is purity. Love in God's family is pure. And we're running quick on time, so I'll try to go through this as quick as I can. This idea of purity, I'm getting from two different verses. One is from in John, and one is from outside of John. The first one in John is in 1 John 3.3 when it says this, Everyone who hopes in God purifies himself as God is pure. That's the first one. The other one is this, 1 Peter 1.22, where Peter says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The idea of purity is having something with nothing mixed into it. So, for example, when you drink a plastic thing of water, you're trusting that it's pure water. It's described as pure water which is saying you're trusting that there's no dirt or chemicals that could mess with you mixed in with it. God wants you to have a love that is pure, a love with nothing mixed into it. Now ask yourself the question, what's the one thing that tends to get mixed up in my love that I need to try and get rid of? And it's this, selfishness. So much of our love is about us. And honestly, that is why the world does not understand this love because it is a love that is conditional. You can meet very, very kind people doing selfless things. But even in Romans, Paul says that even a good person might die for someone unconditionally, except under the condition that they were a good person. That's Romans chapter 5. Maybe you'll meet someone who will die for someone, but their condition is that person better be a really good person. You know, if Martin Luther King is about to get hit by a bus, maybe I'll jump in the way because he's such a nice guy. But Christ demonstrates his love in this. When we were sinners, Christ loved us. That is unconditional love. That's pure love. There's nothing mixed in with me. It's all about them. That is the love Christ says, not just that we should have, but then you can have. Why? Well, number one, because when you prioritize Christ, your love becomes like his love. That's how your love becomes purified. When this relationship is giving you everything loving that you could possibly imagine, you can start to give other people a picture of that love. So if you're asking yourself, why is love so hard for me? It might be because you don't understand Jesus' love for you yet. If you think this relationship was conditional, then this love is going to be conditional. 
But if you really understand that when Christ came and died for you, you were as unlovable as you could possibly be, and he still died for you, that's going to change the way you love other people, especially people who you also know Christ died for. There's a radical way that Christ explains this himself when he says this in Matthew 10, 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a radical verse. And the question is, is he saying, bail on your family, don't love them, just love me? That's not what he's saying, because that would disobey another command. But this is what he's saying. If you love me first, you will love everyone else properly. If this family that Christ has given me is my priority, I'll be able to love my earthly family in way better ways than I did before. If my family on earth is my ultimate priority, my love is deficient and it's defective and it's broken. But if I love my heavenly father and Christ who has become my brother and the spiritual family and the church that he's provided for me, that purifies my love for everyone else on earth, especially my earthly family. And when you prioritize that love, and when you take time to look at that love, 2 Corinthians 3.18, you will be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what he's saying. I love how he says this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40. And Christ says this, the greatest commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he says this right after. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This love is so amazing that the greatest commandment immediately becomes the second commandment. When this love purifies your heart, you'll naturally love from a purified heart. Let me give you the third one. We said that love in God's family is, is uh, present. Love in God's family is pure. And finally, this love in God's family is patient. Love in God's family is patient. We get that in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul is describing love. The first thing he says is patience. Galatians 5, he says that it's a fruit of the Spirit. But maybe my favorite picture of this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where Paul says this. We, being all the apostles and leaders that the church in Thessalonica knows, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So when Paul thinks of gentleness, which is very similar to patience, when he thinks of love, he thinks of a mother. And he says, we were like mothers to you. And he says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. He said, we loved you so much that we treated you like family, even when you weren't acting like family. Which is another way to say, we loved you like a mother. You're in our family, and therefore my love is unconditional. You could be the worst child in the world. I still love you. Here's another way you could say it. Patient love works with weakness. If the fuel you need to fuel your love comes horizontally from the people around you, you're going to put a lot of preferences on your love. And you're going to be very impatient when people don't love you back. But when you already know everything you're receiving from this love, 
it's really easy to not put preferences on your love. In fact, it's going to be obvious to you when people sin, even if they sin against you, even when they're impatient with you, even when they have preferences on you. But you don't need to be the same way if you've received all the divine love from your relationship with Christ. That's love that anticipates weaknesses and actually, in fact, looks for them so that God can use you to build them up in love. That's patient love, one that anticipates the other person is weak. But the second thing that he's getting at is this, that love that is patient is all in. It's saying, I might think that I'm working way more hard in this relationship than the other person, even Christians. But you know what? As Paul said, I don't just want you to understand the gospel. I want to give you all of me. I want to give you my own self. Why? Because again, that is the love of Christ to you. Christ died for you. He forsook his life for you. Doesn't that make you overflow in a different kind of love that doesn't want to stop when someone else is a sinner? I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. But God has fixed me up in so many ways that I wasn't before that I naturally want to fix up someone else. Patient love is all in. To give you one last verse, I love how Moses says this in Deuteronomy 31.8 when he's trying to encourage the people of Israel to go into the promised land. He says this, It is the Lord who goes before you, and he will be with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. No matter how difficult certain relationships in your life will get, especially with people in the church, God has promised you and all other Christians this. He will not leave you or forsake you. God is never going to leave your tank empty. What you just got to do is look at him and his love. And when you do that, you will be amazed at how much fuel you have to love in ways you didn't think you could before. And in saying that, let me just end by saying this. No one can do this properly. What I have just told you is impossible. You cannot love exactly like Christ loved. And that's not the command. But it's that your love would be a glimpse of how good Christ's love is for you. And I also want to say briefly that not everyone here has this idea of love from family. Because no matter what family you're in, whether you think it's very broken and very messy, or just day-to-day messiness and brokenness. No earthly family is a perfect picture of Christ's love. But you know what? God does care about earthly families. And every time you get to look at your earthly family, the goal is that you would have a picture of something bigger and more radical that God is doing. And when that concept is there in your head, no matter which part of your family you're in, it can change your earthly family. So that they wouldn't just be your earthly family, they would be your spiritual family. Again, this concept of love is huge and radical, and we're just touching the surface of it, but the point is this. God wants you to experience love in the church.
God wants you here. He wants you to prioritize this spiritual family, not just so you would give and never get, but that you would be blessed and therefore bless. That you'd be reminded of the gospel of how Christ loved you, that you would be loved by other people because God loves you, and that you would have an opportunity to do more in this world to love others than you could imagine because God loves you and therefore wants to use you. So let's pray. Father, love is is way too amazing of a concept for me to be able to articulate properly. And so we thank you for your word. Thank you for John and the clarity you provided him as an apostle and authority of your word to explain to us how good your love is. It's way deeper and more profound than we could imagine. But we pray, Father, for what we can understand, for what we can comprehend. Fill our hearts with love. Father, for any student in this room who who does not understand this or who does not get how this love could possibly be different, I pray that you would use your church to give them a greater glimpse of your gospel. Father, love is so hard to find in this world. We know it. But for those of us who don't know it, Father, please show us a different kind of love in our church and use us to do that. And Father, we can't do that if we don't understand what your son Christ has done for us. Your love is so much greater because it is divinely unconditional. Father, you didn't force us to change so that you could love us. You loved us and therefore you changed us. Father, help us to understand even in our sin and messiness and brokenness, even when sanctification seems so slow, you still love us. No matter how dirty our hearts may feel, you have a plan to change us and you would comfort us that we might be better representatives of the gospel, that we would not be disqualified from heaven because of our sin. But Father, for those of us who love sin, for those of us who don't understand, for those of us who don't even know if you exist, please let your love intervene. We know that it's possible because it's been possible for us, so please make it possible for them that they might see a greater love nowhere else but in your son Christ. And we rest in your promises because we know they are good and that you can do more than we could ever ask or think, and so we say all of this in your name. Amen.